Dr. Paul's looking at me saying, that's different. It's yes, new. it's a new voiceover, isn't yeah. it? Very nice. <laughs> Hello, Daniel. Hello, Paul. Hello. Afternoon. Welcome to the show. Now, a big pet chat show. What are we talking about, Denny? Well, many of our listeners would have heard of Steve Austin. He does a lot of training of dogs to do specific tasks and he's world-renowned for what he does. We're going to talk about how he trained the dogs that work for Sydney Water to find leaks. Oh, my gosh. Underground leaks. That must take a lot of patience, you'd think, Paul. (laughs) Oh, absolutely. (laughs) More than mine. (laughs) A little later on, Paul, we're looking at big problem that you're seeing a lot of and we've been getting a lot of calls about recently. And mm, separation anxiety. Those yeah. anxious dogs. And, and that can bring out a lot of um, undesirable behaviour. Yeah, correct. And often if you can jump on it early when the first signs are start, you can make a big difference. So. Okay. But next, Denny, very excited for this topic. We're speaking to Steve Austin, who's a canine uh, trainer. Yes. He gets them to sniff out all sorts of things. All sorts of things. And uh, in particular, the discussion we're having today is how he worked with the leak detection dogs for Sydney Water. That is so (laughs) super cool. We're about to catch up with Steve Austin. Denny, why have you uh, chosen Steve today? What are some of the cool things that he's doing? Well, we have actually interviewed Steve a number of times over the lifetime of this show. And he's always doing unique and different type of projects, not just in Australia, but uh, but yeah, internationally. And he'll he'll train dogs to do different things. So, And even now, as we're going to talk to him, he's on the road. I think he's going to do something for the Koala Rescue Organisation or something like that. We'll even ask him about that. But this particular to- topic I found very interesting. How on earth do you train a dog to find an underground water leak? Like Sydney Water has had many issues with thousands of underground water leaks where water gets wasted, but they can't locate them. They, they could be digging a hole here, digging a hole there. and But a dog will actually locate it specifically where it is and the workers come in. It's And this is what he's trained them to do. Well, Steve, how do you start training a dog to do that? Oh, hi, guys. Thank you uh, for inviting me to speak today. It's good to catch up to both of you. Um, how do we train them? Uh, well, look, it's a, it's a simple thing, really. It, it's uh, getting the dog to make sure that it has a reward that it loves to get. It might may be a ball, it might be a tug toy, it might be food or whatever. So the first thing is to... to, 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 to get right into the, the idea that the dog must select the reward and to keep that reward very sacred so it only gets it when it's being trained. Then you uh, then you get the odour. You associate the odour with a word. I just say the word yes, and then you give it that very high-grade reward that it requires. And if you constantly do that in a, in a, in a, in a calm and consistent manner, you'll, the dog soon navigates the idea that that odour gets the yes, which gets the ball or gets the food, and happy days. And that's basically how you do it. And that's it's obviously... Bit, it's a little bit, it takes a little bit longer than that, but it, that's basically how That's that constant repetition. So when Sydney Water came to you, tell us the story how that all started. Well, it started in, in Western Australia, I think. Okay. Uh, with with started over there. We did a dog for water leak detection. They came to me and they said, "Can it be done?" And I, I didn't have, didn't. Well, I, I thought, you know, then that it would could be done. I just didn't know how to do it. But I thought, <laughs> let's give it a go. Yes. So we did a pilot program with my own dogs, and that was very successful. So then we got them a dog and trained it. And, and her name's Kept, little working line Springer Spaniel, and she's been very successful. Sydney Water got a bit of an idea of it, and then they came to me. But they first came to me about 
effluent detection. That's illegal effluent being put into our waterways. So I said, okay, well, we can through that. So again, did a pilot program and that was successful. And then we got uh, two dogs for them, a little working line cocker and another working line springer. And then they went, well, how about a leak detection dog? And I said, why not? So that's how it all started. And basically what happens, I suppose, is that success breeds success. And, and once they saw the um, the economy of how successful those dogs are, and to their credit, they took a big, big leap because it was a, a big... Sydney Water took a bit of a, you know, a big leap and they were very innovative, but I'm, I'm sure now they're very happy with their decision. And, and I can tell you now the dogs are working very well with their new handlers and, and doing some very successful work out there. How long does it take to train a dog and turn it around and have it working? Um, well, you've got a couple of things to think about. You've got the age of the dog. Um, you don't want to put puppies out there, you know, five, six and seven months of age because the physicality of the dog is important. So you develop their, their development structure the same as you train, as you develop their training structure. But if you had a 12-month-old dog and it was all good to go, fit and well and healthy, and you had the right reward drives and it had, it had all the right innate physical and mental condition, you could turn the dog into a very good detector dog with the right training in about 13 to 16 weeks. Wow. And, then, and then you would then develop the handling skills of the handler and, and develop those as well. So it doesn't take that long, but it's the quality of work that really is important, not the quantity. The quantity we shouldn't measure. We should measure the quality of the work because the quality in the end will be ongoing and lasting. If we rush the training too much or we give the dog too much and and not enough idea on how to do it, the dog will fall over. So we develop the dog to its pace that's best suiting that dog. So, Steve, one last thing. So when you've trained the dog, does it um, look for a smell to find the water uh, leak or does it look f- uh, for the sound or hear the sound? Very good question. Uh, in the beginning, it's obviously uh, the water, uh, the chlorinated water, or oh, the water okay. from the tap, you see. But interestingly, two things that can happen that have been fascinated me. I did a dog. And I was training the, the, the last dog, Joey, and, my, and the water area where I was training the dog was covered in rain. It had been raining for seven days, and it was raining at the time. And I thought, I'm going to do a thing called negative punishment. No negative punishment simply means that when the dog does the, you know, does the wrong thing, yep. you don't reward it. You withhold the reward. You take away the reward. And and by the way, again, there's only two quadrants of off-road conditioning that you must use when training detector dogs. You must never use any positive punishment, yelling and screaming and hitting the dog. Mm. Not only is it wrong morally, but it, it's very, it, it, it destroys dogs, particularly detection dogs. So if the dog finds the odour, we reward it, but makes a mistake. We don't reward it. Fantastic. Isn't that wonderful? Oh, it's the so chlorine. good. And I, and I love uh, Steve's motto. It's the philosophy on the page. When dealing with animals, it's crucial to remain calm, quiet, and in control of your emotions. <laughs>
Hence why we're not doing those. Well, I'm not. You, you, know, you guys are pretty good. There you go. Thank you very much, Steve. It is. Now, Paul, we've actually had an email from Tara in Adamstown. She has a nine-year-old King Charles Cavalier. Uh, it's on medication and she said the breathing has become a little bit more rapid than previously she's noticing. Ah, okay. So I'm guessing being a Cavalier King Charles Spaniel, the most likely disease is um, a failure of the valves to function. It's called mitral valve disease. And so uh, without knowing that the other medication she's probably on is is called uh, the active variant is called pimabendin, which tries to make the heart beat more effectively. I think your gizmo may be on the same, yes. same active is that ingredient. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yep. Okay. So um, that's our first line to help dogs with that. So as the disease becomes more progressive, um, fluid will start to build up in the chest. It's called pulmonary edema. And often uh, we need to bring in other medications to help lift that fluid off. They're called diuretics. Ah, okay. And so what we generally do for dogs is if a dog is breathing at rest, more than, say, 30 breaths, certainly a minute, but even if they're getting over that 20 to 25 breaths a minute at rest, that lets us know that the body's working too hard to get oxygen in. Which possibly means there's fluid building up in the lungs. So I would suggest that she might talk to her local vet. Adam's hand might be us. Yes, yes, it could be. <laughs> um, and uh, talk to them about perhaps starting some diuretics. You can tell whether you need one either by auscultation. So often you can hear the heartbeat radiate over a larger area on the chest, which tells you that there's sound moving through fluid, so it's easier to hear. Okay. Um, but more diagnostically, you could do a chest X-ray. And you'll be actually able to see uh, a, a sort of a whiteness in the lungs, which indicates that the fluid is building up around the heart uh, in the lung there. And the directs will try and shift that out. So there are things you can do for these sorts of signs. Awesome. So, Paul, for, for um, people that have pets that are on heart medication, mm. is that something that they can expect in the future that they'll, they'll have to go on a diuretic? Yeah, it's well? a good question, Sarah. Generally, yes. So we initially use medications to make the heart beat more effectively, and there are several in that range. Once the heart sort of reached a stage, because sadly all heart disease is progressive, mm. so none of the medications we can use can sadly reverse heart disease or halt its progress. So the same as in people. Yeah. Um, and with the fact that we don't have the capacity to do um, sort of uh, deep fibrillators and the and the sort of the more pacemaker type scenarios and valve replacements, we're left with trying to make what we've got work to its best. Sure. And so once that starts to fail, then we're really talking about how do we get the fluid buildup, which is occurring, to not affect quality of life. And that's when the, the drugs like Lasix, which is a common diuretic used for chest, um, is, allowed, is getting that fluid off the lungs so they can breathe more comfortably. Paul, do you think that's something we'll see in the future, though, pacemakers for our dogs Look, it's interesting. They, they, they have trialled them, certainly in, in many countries they've used these. The big issue we have with, with lots of our, our sort of um, companion animals is their immune system is excellent. And so rejection is generally the, the, the issue. Oh, it's not okay. that these things don't work. It's the fact that the body rejects them and for, forms a very strong response against it. So in people that have these, they often put them on immunosuppressants, obviously, to stop that happening. Dogs and cats seem to be so good at getting these responses to the immune system that we just seem to get rejection at a high rate. Okay. Now, Paul, one thing we want to talk about today, it's separation anxiety. And we, we speak about it often, but a lot of people are unaware that their dog's behaviour is a result of separation anxiety. Because Correct. it's such a huge topic, I guess, with our pets and one of the biggest ones you see. That's right. And look, I think the... 
often what people are finding is that their dogs are what they call needy. <laughs> yeah. Clingy, Clingy needy. needy. There's a lot of yeah. different words we use for it. Um, now, it is very obvious that dogs enjoy our company and enjoy being with us. They're pack animals. They are. They like to be with a social group and they, and they enjoy a social group dynamic. Now, they should also, though, have the capacity to be independent. And I think sometimes when we start hearing the word needy in a consult room, particularly for myself, it does ring some bells that perhaps this dog is developing a closer attachment uh, due to a need for safety than there is just the attachment of enjoying being with the person. Because it's hard because when we get dogs and particularly, you know, a, a new puppy, a lot of people got them, you know, during COVID and or kittens or whatever the case may be, we do have a tendency to treat them like a baby. That's right. Which I guess can then exacerbate these Correct. issues. Yeah. So the, the biggest issue we often have is that people say, I've got a new puppy coming. I'm going to take the first two weeks off work. To, to bed the puppy in. Now, the, the thought is lovely, but in actual fact, the, the time period that the dog needs to learn some independence is in that real socialisation window that they're up until that sort of 16 to 25 weeks. Ah. So what you do in those time periods is the dog needs to learn some coping mechanisms for being alone. Um, and those, the ability to self-soothe, to learn how to self-soothe, to not panic about being alone is critical. So often dogs are not even left alone till they're sort of maybe uh, six months or more. Yes. And these dogs have not then learned what it is like to be alone and haven't learned coping strategies to deal with that. And therefore, they don't want that to happen. They get scared when they're alone because they've not been shown that there's a normal part of a daily life. So, Paul, we're best off to, in actual fact, not change our routine. I Correct. Mean, uh, Kim, who works here, she did that. She took time off to look after her new puppy, Patterson. And, mm. But so you're saying, look, don't change your routine. What, what's if you, the If you're thoughts? going to do that, you need to make sure you leave the house or leave the puppy every day for at least a, you know a time period so the dog learns that being alone is what's coming down the track okay your what? idea when you're in your socialization window and this goes for all things really is you want the dog to experience anything that it might have to deal with as an adult in that puppy period so it has exposure to these um, events and scenarios in the time period that the brain can make some learning from that so whether it be that you're going to have to be uh, hearing loud noises all the time, you want those loud noises to be exposed to the puppy again in this window of learning. Right. So with socialisation, the same. You want these people, to, the dog puppy, to meet dogs and people and strangers and noises. And, and so with separation anxiety, it's the same. The puppy needs to have an experience of separation to be able to then learn a strategy for when they're alone. And it may well be that that strategy is I go to my crate and I, I rest. Or it might be I really enjoy this particular toy. I'll chew my toy while I'm on my own. Okay. And so teaching the dog that there are these events to, in, to sort of fill up their time when they're not with somebody breaks that separation anxiety cycle. It means that they've learned that they can be alone. There are fun things to do when I'm on my own. And it, that, it means that they've learned that they've also survived it. So if a dog survives a period of time without any negative things happening, it learns it can. If we're constantly there for those time periods, it doesn't learn that there is a survival ability for having an absence. And it's very breed-specific as well. So I don't know, whether it's um, people who 
by small white fluffy dogs when they had them on their laps all the time. But um, certainly we find that small dogs are more likely to develop separation anxiety than large breed dogs. And I think it's often because large breed dogs are often asked to be outside more often. Yeah. And so they're learning yeah. these strategies rather than the fact that they're actually um, genetically more predisposed. Paul, thoughts on uh, dogs being left for long periods of time, you know, six to eight hours when people are at work? Yeah. So um, to be honest, I think any species of pet can deal with an absence. They just need to have behavioural enrichment that gives them something to do or enjoy while they're on their own. Okay. So for some cats, for example, it's sleep. Yep. So lots of cats are going to sleep while, they're, sleep while their owners yeah. aren't there. Um, but you can put things out for cats to play with. Same for dogs. So dogs, again, have long sleep patterns, particularly as they get older. But having something to fill in those days when there isn't someone there is critical. So puzzle toys, um, hide your food in the sandpit. Um, rather than feed in a bowl, throw the food through the backyard so that the dog can't see where you've thrown it, let the dog out again and have the dog have to sniff and hunt its food. Yeah. Use some um, sort of times, uh, time-using activities so that they're thinking more about the food and what's happening than the absence and being alone. All right, Paul, well, we might take a break. When we come back, we might look at some of the signs that our pets are struggling uh, from separation anxiety. And Sounds then good. some ways we might be able to help as well. Perfect. Hello, it's Pet Chat. Sarah with you, Dr. Paul with you. And we're having a look at our Dog of the Week. We've been talking so much about this off air <laughs> because the dog's name is Nymeria. And, of course, that is a dire wolf from Game of Ah, uh, yes, Stark's dire wolf, correct. Oh, one of the only two to make it through the series. So what's the other one? Wolf, uh, Ghost. Ghost. Yeah, Jon Snow's wolf makes it through oh, as well. Gosh, you've got a good memory for Game of Thrones. <laughs> I was very traumatised by that program, so it's all scarred in there. <laughs> oh, yeah, weren't we all? So, look, obviously uh, the name comes from Game of Thrones because it's a four-year-old Kelpie cross wolfhound. Ah, there so we go. There's looking, a link. Yeah, there is a link. Now, what a gorgeous girl. Let's just have a quick look at the pictures here. You can do the same as well by heading to 2NURFM.com. Oh, she does look gorgeous, doesn't hmm. she, on the beach? You can see the wolfhound in the... um. In the face, in the as beard, well. yeah, yeah. Now, Nymeria loves a tickle and always wants to be up for a, a sofa cuddle. Oh. <laughs> Don't we all? So she sounds like a bit of a smoocher. She likes lying in the sun and in our home has a favourite spot where she can look out the window at the world. So she's a bit of a ponderer. She is. I think she's happy to chill and have a look. Uh, she's happiest where she's near her humans when they are home, but she's very relaxed when they are at work and spends the day snoozing. No That's, separation anxiety there. That is excellent. Bigger <laughs> dog. That fits in with uh, yeah, you know what absolutely. you were saying. She's fully house trained and has no interest in escaping the yard. Uh, she loves spending her days lazing around the house and enjoys a long walk once a day. She sleeps perfectly at night indoors and has only barked once or twice, possibly when she's heard something outside. So she's obviously not she an issue. She sounds perfect, doesn't she, she? I think I might adopt her. Um, <laughs> she's a large dog and is lead reactive to other dogs. So she needs someone committed to her ongoing training and guidance. So I guess that's getting her out and about, but in a safe environment. Paul. That's it. And, and having a distance between yourself and the other people first so that you can learn and, and, and link a positive reinforcement with that other dog passing.
Okay. Look, th- really, there's no negatives here. She's fantastic when she has a bath. She stands very still. Uh, she's great with kids. She's currently living with a one-year-old and three-year-old and she loves them. She is really kind to them. So, look, if you're looking for a loyal companion and a big softie, I really don't think you have to look any further. Head to 2NURFM.com.au, click on Pet Chat, Dog of the Week, and look at Nymeria. I think you'd be very happy. Now, Paul, we've been discussing separation anxiety and we've mm. been um, talking about some of the things we can do to prevent separation anxiety if you have a younger dog. Yep. But what are some of the signs to look out for if perhaps it's beyond that and your, your yeah. pet does suffer from it? Okay. So one of the very subtle signs you'll often see is those dogs that are people's shadows. Mm. So those people who say, oh, my dog just moves from room to room to room with me, then that's very common in that we generally have um, that as a very first sign. And so when you've got that shadowing as your first one, look to um, providing some displacement activities when you're about to leave a room or to move away. Um, But don't respond in any way to the dog as far as uh, a reassurance. So don't say, it's all good, I'm going to come back in five minutes. Yeah, yep. So you're better to just get up and leave rather than make a, a big deal about leaving. One of the other signs you'll often have is that the dogs might start to whimper or shiver when people pick up their keys or put their shoes on. Those signs that you're okay. leaving. Yeah, those early signs that you're leaving. Dogs are, are very good at understanding body language and they've mapped out what's happening in advance. So if they can see that there are these indicators that they're about to be left alone, the, the worry may start. Right. So in those circumstances, it's often a matter of making sure that you break your cycle up. So you might pick up your keys and then go back and sit down again for another hour ah, or so. Okay. You might put your shoes on, but you stay seated in your house or you play in That's your backyard. Clever. So it's desensitising so you're, de- you're trying those to make triggers. that not always the trigger. Right. Because often what happens is a series of triggers all linked together and it, it just keeps building the anxiety up. So you're trying to take the sort of sting out of each of those events. And then, of course, often the separation anxiety question isn't known by the owners until the neighbours start ringing saying, your dog barks all day. Yes, Okay. And so, interestingly, there will be lots of those earlier indicators well before you get the phone call from the neighbour. Okay. So, that's where this early recognition of these signs can play a big role. Um, and training your dog as early as you can to be alone so that you don't get to the stage where the neighbours are calling. Because disappointingly, once you've got to the stage where those neighbours are calling and the barking is happening, the barking is a really effective um tool for dogs to use for separation anxiety because it works yes they bark and bark and bark and eventually someone comes home so their barking is what brought the person home yeah so next time i go up as soon as they've gone i'll bark and bark and bark and bark because if i keep barking they come home they don't link the fact that you were always going to come home that what brought you home was the barking the barking and so it's self-rewarding it 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 is a, a successful attempt. So you want to try and make sure that you can break those cycles. Often if you've reached the stage where there is barking, then looking at trying to have either doggy daycare may be necessary. So you take the dog out with you to a doggy daycare environment and they're with somebody else while you're away. Or having someone come in and sit at the house. Again, the training is important, but when you've got to the stage of barking, often you've missed those early signs and that 
ease of training becomes harder then. Okay. Can you still attempt? Like, Correct. Is there still success stories? Or yeah. Is it- and certainly there are those times when you might speak to your local veterinarian about having the addition of some behaviour modifying medications as well. Okay. In that often if they've reached that stage, you're then really looking for, can I reduce the generalised anxiety so we can get that relearning to occur? Because the longer that those behaviours are present, so the longer those barking events are occurring, as in days, weeks, months, the harder they are to break because of that success that they always have. Okay, so Paul, what about uh, say someone that might be retired uh, is home mm. more often than not? Is it okay to have their dogs or cats with them constantly? You know those people that call and say, "Oh, well, they're always with me. Wherever yes. I go, they go." Is that still problematic? It is, and and we see separation anxiety much more commonly in retirees. Um, who have taken on a younger dog or uh, a, a puppy at those times, often because people do. I've retired now. I've got more time to spend to devote to my dog. Yes. I'll get a puppy. Um, it's really important in those early stages that those people still leave their home, whether it be to go to the shops more often or you visit some friends more often and you don't take your dog so that that learning can occur in that early age bracket because it is very, very common to have retirees have okay. um, dogs that develop separation anxiety. Because even though they're home a lot, you know, there's – Still going to be times where you can't always be there, appointments, you That's might, right. you know, be going That's right. away, etc. It can even be you don't have to leave your house. You can just place them outside for a time period and you ignore. So when they start the barking or the whining, you ignore that. You tell your neighbours, I'm training my dog to have some, some time alone. And so what you do with that is you say, neighbours, for the next couple of weeks, you're going to hear some barking. I apologise, but we're going to work on getting this under control. Sure. So that you're, you've warned your neighbours, the letters of complaint aren't coming. Um, and doing it during the day or that's you right. know, at an appropriate time. That's right. So it's often a really important thing to get that understanding is act early for separation anxiety because it you can make it ex- disappear if you can catch it early and you can prevent it even starting if you work on those uh, learning, those self-resilience and self-reliance episodes right from the get-go. So it's that oh, it's cruel to be kind, really. You yep, know, yep. You've got a tough love. Tough love. That's it. Yeah, okay. Good, good, good word. Oh, well, there you go, Paul. Thank you. We're just about out of time again. It goes, it goes quick. It does go very quickly. Thanks for listening to this podcast from 2NURFM at the University of Newcastle. You'll find them all at 2NURFM.com.